you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Just a reminder for kids that are joining us, there's uh, some red folders on the chair by the back door with fill-in-the-blank sermon outline notes to help track what's going on. Also, uh, just a plug, I forgot to mention in the announcements, both services now, uh, that we, uh, we have Sunday school at 10 o'clock. Kids meet upstairs, but the adults and the youth meet in here, and we just began a new series for the month of October on mercy ministry. Uh, just practically, what is it? What does it look like? Why do we do it? Um, what are the problems with it? And, and what can that look like in our church? So we urge you to join us next week at 10 a.m. right here. Uh, and the other announcement I have is, hold on tight. We are starting Matthew 24. Uh, we've been going through Matthew for some time now. We're in the, the back portion of it. And uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' last words to his disciples before the Last Supper, his last uh, words of his ministry, and, uh, and they are they're heavy stuff. So hang on. This morning we are looking at Matthew 24. I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple But he answered them, Oh, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then... Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Like I said, hold on tight. Okay, this is just the beginning. The next four weeks, we'll be looking at Matthew 24, which is all about the end of the world, right? Maybe not so much. Sort of. A quick reading of this passage might make you think that Jesus is teaching what's going to happen when the world ends and when that's going to happen and what to look for and how to know it's coming. But really, it's more complex than that. Uh, to begin with, let's look at verse 3. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So for each of the next four weeks, as we look at this chapter, we're going to remind you of, of that verse. Because in that verse, we see there's actually two questions that Jesus is answering. First, uh, in verse uh, 3, When will these things be? These things is what Jesus just predicted in the previous verse, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We'll we'll hear about that in a minute. The second question in verse 3 is, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? 
So there are two things Jesus is talking about. And if you've ever been in a place where you're, where you're looking off in the distance and, and you see a, a, a range of mountains off in the distance, you might see two mountain peaks that seem to be right next to each other, almost even overlapping. But as you get closer, you come to find out they're actually very far apart, and it's only your distance as you look at them that makes them seem to be close to each other. Jesus is doing a bit of the same thing here. He's speaking of two events, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and his ultimate return at the end of the age. And at times, as you read and hear what he says, it seems like he's speaking of them almost at the same time, as if these things are happening together. But as, as we draw closer, we see they're actually separated by a great distance. And at times in this chapter, it's hard to tell when Jesus is speaking about one event and when he's speaking about the other, when he's answering the first question and when he's answering the second question. And I want to say that good and godly Bible-believing men and women are going to disagree over some of those answers and the meaning of some of these things, and that's, that's okay. Because as we're about to see, Jesus puts it all in perspective. Rather than answer their questions right away, he begins by doing something else, something that the Scripture does every time it talks about the end times. Whenever Scripture speaks of the end times, it shifts our focus and reorients our focus from when these things will happen, and instead, what should we do about it now? How should we live in light of these things that are going to happen? How will the knowledge that Jesus will return and that the world will be judged, how should that affect the way that you and that I live today? So whether his people are facing the end of Jerusalem or the end of the world, Jesus asks the same thing of us. We see in these verses that Jesus wants His followers to endure. He wants us to endure as we wait and look forward to His return. And so to help us endure, He gives us some direction. The first thing He tells us is don't get distracted. We get distracted in several ways, and one of them we see here in verse 1. Jesus leaves the temple, and as He's going away, His disciples come and point out to Him the buildings of the temple. In another gospel, it says they were marveling over the architecture and how amazing this place was. And truly, in Jesus' day, the temple was an architectural wonder. It was the by far the largest temple of any religion anywhere in the known world. It was made of giant slabs of rock, ornately decorated in gold and other things. I mean, huge, huge rocks. As Jesus is leaving the temple and heading out of the city, his disciples are saying, Jesus, isn't this amazing? Isn't this, isn't this amazing? And in verse 2, he says, oh, you see these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When he says stone, he's talking about these giant 10, 12 foot high stones and slabs and squared off marble. He says it's all going to be torn down. And we, as we talked about last week, Jesus was predicting the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And, and not long after, in the year 70 AD, Rome would finally enter Jerusalem and crush it and, and truly tear down the temple brick by brick and level it. Now, now, we today may not be in danger of being distracted by the temple, but the idea is this. The disciples were seeing things as they now are, and Jesus wants them to consider what they will be. And that's something we can relate to. We get distracted by the way things now are, the great and mighty things of today, and think not about what's going to last and what's going to pass. We get easily distracted by the power 
or the beauty or the might or the fanciness of the things of this world, mighty kingdoms and powers and governments that rule our age, great feats and accomplishments of mankind, riches and power of mighty people and companies. And and that distraction can lead us to give our hearts to things that are passing away. It can lead us to be awed and influenced by things that are not going to last. It can lead us to be loyal and desirous of things that will one day come to an end. As we're warned in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now don't hear me wrong. The world is beautiful. Creation is is a gift of God. And our eternal home is, in fact, on earth. In Revelation, John sees the the new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so the, the dwelling of God will be with us on a renewed heaven and earth. Earth will be made new. Our hope is not in the things that will pass, but in what God is going to do. So don't get distracted by impressive things that will someday be gone. Don't place your hope Don't be awed. Don't be terrified. Don't be impressed by things that are here today, but not for eternity. But that's not the only way we get distracted. Jesus talks about another way in verses 4 and 5. He says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. The name Jesus and the title Christ might be so familiar to us that you might read that that verse and think that Jesus is warning us not to follow someone who claims to be Jesus because Jesus has already come in the flesh. There's truth to that. and Even in my ministry overseas in in Asia, uh, encountered cults that were centered around the belief that Jesus had already returned in human form and and needed to be followed uh, as a cult leader, basically. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. When he says, many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ, Christ is a title. It's the the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah was the one who was predicted and promised by God that he would appear in power to deliver and rescue and lead God's people. And, And in the years after Jesus and in the years before Jesus, many charismatic leaders rose up and claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. And they they called people to gather around them. They said, I'm the one that God has chosen to rescue you, to save you. If you follow me, you have hope. And all who followed were led astray and paid a price. Jesus is saying to his disciples 2,000 years ago and to us today, don't be distracted by that. Don't, Don't listen to anyone who tries to tell you that they are God's special leader, that you must follow them to be saved. That everybody else has it wrong. Don't follow anyone who uses the fear, the excitement of the end times or your anticipation and and, and understanding of what's going on in the world around you to say that they, they alone have the answers. They alone have a unique hope or a unique insight or a unique prophecy or a unique power. Sincere, godly people can be led astray by that. And I'm not just talking about the end times. I'm saying, don't look to any celebrity. Don't look to any politician. Don't look to any religious leader. Don't look to anyone other than Jesus to give you hope for the future. People will tell you, I have the answers. Follow me. 
I'm something special. Listen to me. Do what I say. Go where I go. Buy what I buy. Vote how I vote. Do what I say and you will be blessed. You will have hope. Jesus is warning us, do not be deceived. God has sent His Son. And only in Jesus is there hope. And if you look to anyone else, you will be distracted from receiving the true hope and true blessing that God has given in Jesus. So the first way that Jesus gives us to endure is to do not be distracted. The next thing He says is don't be alarmed. Look at verse 6. He says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Jesus' hearers would be expecting that the Messiah's rise to power would be accompanied by a great war, the war of the Messiah, where, where God Himself would intervene to fight for His people and to crush God's enemies. So anytime that a war started or where there was rumor of war or conflict or unrest or tension, that it would be natural for the people to think, maybe this is it. Maybe the time has come. Maybe this is the great war of the Messiah. And we, we do that too, don't we? We follow the news. We, we hear what's going on. And, and every war, every conflict, every unrest, we wonder and perhaps even believe this is finally it. This is the big one. This is when it's going to happen. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't get worked up over these things. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. This isn't the end. Verse 7. Nation's going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. If you didn't know this, political turmoil is not new to our generation. Natural disasters are not unique to the 21st century. These things have been happening as long as there has been creation under, the, under sin. These things have been happening. Natural disasters in many cultures are thought to signify a transition of power. When there's an earthquake, when there's a flood, when there's a famine, it means that the, uh, the gods are displeased with the current government and leader and king or whatever, and they're soon to be replaced. And, and Jesus says, no, don't, don't look at it like that. Every time there's a, an earthquake or a famine or some sort of disaster. In verse 8, he says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is using a, a, an interesting word there, calling it birth pains pains. Uh, the Jewish thinkers of the day expected that um, when the Messiah came, there would be these things. There would be wars. There would be disasters. There would be earthquakes. And they said that these things would be the birth pains of the Messiah. Because after the, the, tr the traumatic, painful birth pains comes the, the, the new thing, the good thing. Jesus describes it himself in John 16. He says to his disciples, truly I say to you, you, my disciples, will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Because when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. The return of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God will be so great a thing that, that the joy of it will overshadow and erase the memory of the pain that preceded it. I'm often fond of quoting to you Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing. They're not on the same level. You can't even compare with the glory that's to be revealed in us. So these things, these traumatic things, these terrible things, they're just the beginning. 
of the birth pains of something greater. So don't be alarmed. Will there be pain as we wait for Christ to return? Absolutely, yes. Will there be suffering and trouble in our own lives and in the world? Yes. Will there be wars and disasters and heartache and distress? Yes. But should we be alarmed? No. Do any of those things have the power to separate you from God's love? No. Will any of those things be able to stop God's victory? No. Are any of those things outside of the control of God who loves you and fights for you? No. So then our focus should not be on the troubles that we witness and rather be on the promise of Jesus that He has overcome these things. About a year and a half ago, when we, when we, the first service where we had to go strictly to live stream uh, because of the coronavirus, we, we paused our look at Matthew. And for one week, we looked instead at Psalm 11. Hear the words of the beginning of Psalm 11. David writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to the mountains. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in its holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. David is saying, look, why are you coming up in here trying to scare me? Why are you trying to convince me that, that I'm in danger? Why are you trying to tell me that I need to run and hide? God is in his temple. Nothing changed. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be alarmed if God is in control. When we fix our eyes on the events and happenings and rumors and fears of this world, yes, we panic and would have every right to if that was all there was to the story. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when God is in control, we will not be alarmed. And when that fear is taken away, you have the power to endure until He returns. So He says, I want you to endure. Don't get distracted. Don't be alarmed. Next, don't lose your love. Moving from global politics and disasters, Jesus then describes what will happen to and among the people of God. And to understand what He says there, I want to start with a focus on verse 12 for a minute. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We often think of, of law and love as, as opposite ends of a spectrum, maybe, or two different poles on how we, we serve and, and love and obey God. Some are drawn to law. We like rules. We like obedience. We like ritual. We like things clear and neat and orderly and controllable. And others, we, 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 we just want to love. We want to love God. We want to love people. We want to feel. We're feely people. And, you know, how often do people set it up as like, well, you, you know, I, I, I'm not into the law. I'm about loving. It's like, oh, nothing the mushy love. We need the law of God. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus just ripped apart that way of thinking. He says, look, the whole point of the law is to teach us to love. And how are you going to love? God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, my law. So far from being in any sort of tension, they are actually one and the same thing. Where there is lawlessness, where there is no law, love runs cold. 
Jesus says. And when love grows cold, we lose our motivation, our ability, our desire to endure and be faithful. And so this third warning or instruction on how to endure until Jesus returns is don't let your love grow cold. And that makes sense of what comes before it. Because maintaining your love for Jesus is what enables you to put up with all this stuff he described before that, beginning in verse 9. What the followers of Jesus will face and endure, they will, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We see religious persecution. We see people leaving the faith and saying, this is not for me anymore. I either don't like it or I can't put up with it. We see hatred and betrayal even among God's people. We see false prophets lying and deceiving people. We, we see people living as if no rules applied to them. And a lot of you are thinking, wow, that sure does describe today, doesn't it? I promise you for 2,000 years, people have been standing in front of God's people preaching this passage. And God's people have said, that sounds a lot like today. In the year 100 A.D., in the year 500 A.D., in the year 1200, in the year 1800, in the year 1950. Because these things are always true. And what sustains us through that, what enables us to endure persecution and betrayal and abandonment of faith and false prophets, it's love. Love for Christ. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love endures even persecution. Love is not resentful when others hate and argue and offend. Love doesn't insist on its own way. And so go off and abandon the faith. Love rejoices with the truth and not with wrongdoing or falsehood and false teaching. Love hangs on even when others leave. It's amazing what you can put up with out of love. What helps you endure until the return of Christ is not researching current events to know how things are going to play out in the future. It's not rising up against the specter of apostasy and false faith anywhere you can find it. It's not drawing lines in the sand as to who's right and who's wrong. What makes you endure into the end is fanning into flame your love for God. How do we do that though? Well, Scripture says we love because He loved us first. We can't on our own manufacture and generate this feeling of love towards God. He had to start the ball rolling. We love because He loved us first. And so the way we keep our love from growing cold is we keep before us in our hearts and in our minds the love of God. Let's look at Hebrews 12. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. Let us endure the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? We do it by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What did He do that we look to? For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we look to. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What helps you endure is kindling into flame the fire of your love for Christ. Look upon the cross and remind yourself of what he has done, that he is worth whatever we are called upon to endure. When we give up following his way, we become lawless and our love grows cold. But when we consider Jesus, when we consider what he has done, we are given strength to endure because he inspires and increases our love. So in order to help us endure, Jesus had said, don't get distracted. Don't be alarmed. Don't lose your love. There's one more thing he says. Don't stop working. And can you imagine a, a sports team? Maybe it's like a, let's go with a soccer team. Because I never know when a soccer game's going to end. I mean, they got, somebody's, somebody's keeping time and he's not telling us what the time is, right? And, and you imagine the team at halftime and they're, they're down a couple goals and they gather around the coaches trying to motivate them. It's like, guys, guys, I've got good news. Eventually, the game's going to end. We just have to make it to the end. Okay? Who's going out there ready to play after that? I mean, okay, we just got to watch. Okay, well, there goes the ball. That's nonsense, right? No, nobody wants to be on that team. That's not how you endure in a sports match. Hey. Okay? Well, look at verse 14. Jesus calls us to the same thing. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We're not just standing around waiting for the end. The plan that God had from the very beginning, from the moment He created man and woman, this was His plan. His plan was to fill the earth with His glory, with His image. That's why he made man and woman in his image and then instructed them to do what? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If they are made in the image of God and they are filling the earth, with what are they filling the earth? The image of God. Because God wants to spread his glory, his image throughout all of his creation. And then even when that image was marred and damaged by sin, God restored it in Christ so that all who come to Christ are remade. They're a new creation, made new after the image of Christ, Scripture tells us. And then he commands the church to do what? He says, go and make disciples in this little area over here, right? Go and make disciples in that No, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Because a disciple is somebody who is being made new in the image of God. And when you make disciples in all nations, you are again spreading the image of God around the world. That's the goal. That's the end game. That's the purpose. That's what it's all about. He says it in Habakkuk 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what God is working towards in this creation. Until that mission is complete, the end delays. The end waits. This is why we support global missions. This is why we value and practice evangelism. This is why we plant churches locally and around the world because the gospel must be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Everyone everywhere must learn that God in love sent His Son to take our place in being punished unto death. 
And that in rising from the dead, Jesus begins a new kingdom that will never end and we are invited and called to join that kingdom by following and being in that king. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, as the body of Christ. You know, I take comfort in seeing that even the disciples, as they witnessed the resurrected Jesus speaking to them and ascending to heaven and being told to go out and do this, they still needed a reminder that that was to be their priority. We see it in Acts chapter 1. I always laugh when I get to the end of this story. When they, the disciples, had come together with Jesus, this is the resurrected Jesus, and they asked Him, Lord, now is now the time? Now? Now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And when he'd said these things, and, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And here's where it gets funny, in my opinion. And then while they're gazing into heaven, just standing there watching, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's a fair question. Guys, he just told you to go do something. And you're standing there looking at the sky like you're waiting for him to be like, just kidding, guys, now's the time. I'm coming back now. You know, like, how much time do we spend gazing at the sky? How much time do we spend focusing on and thinking, well, it's just, he's going to come back. It's going to end. It's going to end. Meanwhile, he's given us something to do. Why do you stand there staring at the sky? He just told you what to do in the meantime. The angels say, look, he will come back. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know when. You don't need to know what's going to happen and what is happening in Israel, in Iran, in the U.S., in China. You don't need to know and worry about who the Antichrist is and what the number is and all this stuff. No, he's coming back. He will come back. Enough said. Until then, you've got a job to do. Something that has to be done before he comes back. Until he returns, we tell the good news of the kingdom. Am I saying that each and every one of you should quit your jobs, drop out of school, go preach the gospel? Not exactly. As evidence of that, I would point to the many, many, many people in the New Testament. Godly people living normal lives of obedience and faith, commended for doing so, not quitting the, the good Callings that God has given them to make tents, to farm, to, to design clothes, whatever God had called them to do, they continued to do it. But they were transformed. Their priorities changed. Their purpose changed. We do take part in sharing the gospel by supporting missionaries and giving to the work of the church, by seeking out and taking advantage of opportunities to share with a neighbor, with a friend, with a family member, and by living lives that show forth the truth and the beauty of the gospel so that those who hear the good message see in your life the evidence of it, that it makes a difference, that it has transformed you. Don't stand there looking at the sky. Don't stand there counting the years and days, reading the newspaper, wondering when it's going to be. No. Don't stop working. Get back to the work He's called you to do to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to every nation. And when it comes to the end times, I think too many of us follow the advice of Fleetwood Mac. 
don't stop thinking about tomorrow. You know, we just, we're just thinking about it. Oh, heaven's going to be great. He's coming back. And Antichrist is going to be thrown down. I know who it is. I'll tell you later. You know, just, we're just thinking about tomorrow. And, and, true. We should be motivated by, inspired by, and encouraged by God's promises of what he's going to do and how his victory is going to be complete. That should encourage us and inspire us. But if all we do is think about tomorrow and think about what that's going to be like when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. You know, it's great. Sure. But if that's all we're thinking about, we may miss what God has called us to do today. So instead of Fleetwood Mac, let's tune into Curtis Mayfield. Continue to give. Continue to live for what you know is right. We just keep on keeping on. That's the message Jesus has here. We are called to endure until he returns. Keep on keeping on. That doesn't mean we just sit tight and wait. It means we guard ourselves against distraction. It means that we are confident and not alarmed by what happens in the world because we know that God is in his, on his throne. It means that we seek to grow in our love for God and His people by looking at what God has done for us. We fan into flame that love. And we labor to do the work that He has given us to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in every nation. And we can do all this. We are able to do all this because of what the gospel makes real. We don't work and wait and endure hoping it all might work out in the end. No, the gospel is so much better than that. The gospel gives us more than the possibility of a happy ending. The gospel gives us a guarantee because from the moment that Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered death and defeated God's enemies. The, the book was written before it even happened. It's like a history book that's written before history plays out. It's guaranteed it's going to happen. The victory is secure. And so, brothers and sisters, what I leave you with is this. The gospel does not tell us to endure so that we will be saved. The gospel tells us that because we are saved, we will endure. Because God has finished the work, because it is done, we can endure, we will endure, because it's not us. It's not up to us to win the victory. God has won the victory. And now He calls us, He calls His church to arise and live in light of that victory, enduring in joy and faith until He returns. Let's pray that His Spirit would enable us to do that today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that, that You have won the victory. That through Jesus Christ, You have conquered sin, death, and the enemy, Satan, that by your Spirit you enable us to live faithfully in light of these things. We pray that you would fill our heart with the joy of the knowledge of the truth of these things. That as surely as Christ is risen, we will endure to the end who are in him. Transform our hearts by these things. Shape our lives by these things. As we pray and work and wait for your coming, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.